enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. destination in mind. It helps me actually leave the house when I have a motivating reason to do so, but more than that, it helps me to navigate my city. When I'm going across town or even across the country, I need to have other landmarks that I can find to ensure that I'm going the right way. If I didn't have a map and if I didn't have Wi-Fi, which has happened more times than I'd like it to, then I'm kind of screwed. If I was an astronomer and navigator, though, I'd be fine. Well, I might need some help from a couple specific tools to make my journey easier, but using the fixed stars and the sun and moon to navigate is a tradition that's as old as Homo sapiens. Folks started developing specialized devices to help them find their place in the world and in time, and I'll be talking about four of those devices today. I collected a ton of videos about these different tools, too, so please check those out at, all one word, fillthevoid-with dash space dot tumblr dot com. There's only so much my sultry voice can do to describe a thing. I'll do my best, but if you want a better visual, I have the resources for you and they're on that website. Claudius Ptolemy, our old and very good friend, is credited with inventing the armillary sphere. Armillary spheres show the apparent daily motion of the sun, depending on what day it is, the season, the latitude, all that. They're built based on Ptolemy's geocentric model, which we know is bullshit, but in this case the armillary sphere still works fine because these devices show the sun's apparent motion as seen from Earth. Armillary spheres were still used as a teaching tool well beyond the time when Ptolemy's astronomical system fell apart, which makes it pretty clear how cool they are for showing what the sun looks like it's doing on any given day. They were popular until about the 18th century, and I think the best way you can picture them is as... A skeleton of the sky, like a deconstructed sphere. So the middle of the armillary sphere uh, has a round ball that represents the Earth. Moving outward from the Earth ball, there are three rings that are parallel to each other. The middle ring represents a couple things. It's the Earth's equator, and it's also where the sun will be at noon on the vernal and autumnal equinoxes if you're on the equator. So directly overhead. The northern ring is where the sun will be at noon on the summer solstice, and it's also called the Tropic of Cancer. The southern ring is the sun's position at noon during the winter solstice, and it's the Tropic of Capricorn. Welded to all three of these rings at an angle, holding them all together in their parallel shape, is a fourth ring. This one is the ecliptic, or the path of the sun over the course of the year, and it is marked with the signs of the zodiac. It represents a solar year. It'll usually have little lines, like on a ruler, that show how many days the sun spends in each sign of the zodiac. Where this ring is welded to the other three rings depends on which zodiac sign a solstice or an equinox falls under. 
So the summer solstice is between Cancer and Gemini, and the zodiac ring will be attached to the ring that represents the Tropic of Cancer at this point on the zodiac ring. The equatorial ring will be attached at the fall equinox between Virgo and Libra, and the spring equinox between Pisces and Aries. And the Tropic of Capricorn ring is attached at the winter solstice between Sagittarius and Capricorn. Running around the outside of all four of these rings is a final ring that is called the Meridian Ring. It has tick marks around its edges, just like the Zodiac Ring has marks for the days spent in a particular sign. But on the Meridian Ring, these tick marks represent latitude. You can pick the whole assembly up by the Meridian Ring and adjust the tilt of the armillary sphere based on what your latitude is. This is how you get the sphere to show you what the sun's motion will be on a particular day in the year. The meridian ring also points straight up and down, fitting into the armillary sphere stand at a perpendicular angle, and it represents the sun's position at noon. So, to see the armillary sphere in action, you set your latitude with the meridian ring. The many rings within the meridian ring all fit into a stand that looks like the kind of stand you'd use to hold a globe. If you want to picture it, imagine cupping a ball or an apple or something in both of your hands, palms up. Try to get the sides of your index fingers as parallel to the ground as possible. That straight edge that holds up the armillary sphere is the horizon line. The motion of the sun is going to be based on where on the zodiac ring you choose to pick your day. When you rotate the armillary sphere within the meridian ring, you will see what path the sun will take and how long the day will last from sunrise to sunset. Was the armillary sphere hard to understand? Describing something accurately isn't easy, and picturing it based on a verbal description is even harder, I think. This next instrument's even harder to describe than the armillary sphere, but I'll do my best, so bear with me. So an astrolabe combines a mechanical model of the sky's rotation during the course of a night with an instrument that helps you measure the altitudes of objects in the night sky. These two purposes come together to help determine the time of day based on a star's altitude, and also what time of day it'll rise based on the apparent movement of the heavens. It's an extremely old instrument, too, dating from the time of Hipparchus to the time the telescope was invented at the turn of the 17th century. Astrolabes are double-sided discs, and oh my god, they were elaborate and gorgeous, all brass circumferences and little flame-like projections that pointed off the movable rings to the points where major stars were found in the night sky. They had some major downsides, though. You could only use them in a certain area. Just like the armillary sphere, they had to be adjusted for latitude. But in the astrolabe's case, they had to have a completely different face on one side if you were moving to a new area. That's a whole lot of brass to replace. There were probably paper ones that were easier to replace and such, but none of those survived, just the brass ones. An astrolabe looks a bit like a clock. It's plate-sized, usually six to eight inches across, and on one side it has a carved-out center ring that holds sets of thin plates. This part of the astrolabe is called the mater, Latin for mother. The ring around the edge of the mater is marked with degrees and can also mark out 24 hours, with noon at the top and midnight at the bottom for telling time. Those are usually the European astrolabes. The Islamic astrolabes didn't have the hours amendment. You'd put a plate into the mater that had the local latitude engraved with circles of altitude and azimuth, which I'll talk about a little later. Sometimes the plates were double-sided, so you could have a couple latitude options represented. 
These plates are an example of stereographic projection. This is a process for representing a curved surface on a flat one, like the way that we make flat maps out of our round Earth. Stereographic projections are ideal for astrolabes, because circles on the celestial sphere are still circles when you project them onto the astrolabe, and stereographic projections preserve the angles that appear on the celestial sphere as well. Over the plate and its stereographic projection, you fit a disc called the rete, which is Latin for net. It was also made of brass, and this was kind of spider-webby, so you could see the plate beneath. Here is where there were the little flame-like spikes of brass that pointed out the fixed star positions. The rete also had a circle showing the sun's ecliptic, dividing it into 30-degree sections representing the zodiac signs. On top of the rete would go a clock-like hand that stretched the entire diameter of the astrolabe. This hand was called the rule. The rule and the rete could both be rotated over the face of the plate. Fun fact, the pin that held the rule and rete in place was a wedge that was usually shaped like a horse head because screws hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> I wonder when screws were invented, if not in the medieval times. I never thought about it before. <laughs> All right, so that's side one of the astrolabe, from mater to plate to rete to rule. The back of the astrolabe would have a ton of different scales carved on it, depending on where and when the astrolabe was made. Every astrolabe had a scale to measure angles, another clock hand-like ruler that helped measure the altitude of celestial objects called an alidade, and a scale to determine the sun's longitude for any date, but other scales were at an astrolabe maker's discretion. The astrolabe itself was suspended from a cord like a pendant for taking measurements of the sun or a star. You'd use the alidade to measure a star's angle of distance from the horizon. Most European astrolabes, and many Islamic ones, had a shadow square on the back, which was a scale for solving simple trigonometry problems. You'd find scales on Islamic astrolabes to help determine prayer times, scales to determine the direction of Mecca, mathematical scales of sine and cosine, and astrological information. European instruments often had scales for converting between unequal hours and equal hours. So, you know how days get shorter in the winter and longer in the summer? Back in the day, instead of having all hours be the same length of time, people divided the day into 24 hours, but kept it so that the sun was always up for 12 hours and gone for 12 hours. This meant that the length of the hours changed. These hours, which vary in length over the seasons of a year and with the distance from the equator, are called unequal, planetary, temporal, temporary, or seasonal hours. Planetary hours were an ancient system where each of the seven classical planets ruled a different part of the every day. You see the idea pop up, actually, in the Thornton Wilder one-act play Poem and Car Hiawatha, when every hour is ruled by a different philosopher. <laughs> Maybe only I ever had to deal with what the fuck that play was talking about. It's a very weird play. While we're on the subject of bizarre astronomical literary references, and I by no means recommend reading it just for the astronomy, uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales mentions an astrolabe and also talks about planetary hours, <laughs> just to get an idea of how common they were in the Middle Ages. You can make your own, and a way cheaper version than the ones made of brass, because we have invented clear paper, aka transparencies, like they used to use with those old projectors in schools, and we have advanced printing techniques. One of the sources on my website has a guide to making your own astrolabe if you want to check it out, and I included a video of a girl from San Francisco University High School using a homemade astrolabe to predict sunrise and sunset, and to measure time and directions.
Want to know another instrument that helped determine directions? The sextant. Well, it was used more for determining your location at sea, but that isn't as smooth a transition from astrolabes. It was the final instrument in a line of devices that were used to sight the altitude of stars in the sky. There's a rich history of navigating across the sea using the stars. Arab navigators used knotted string and a piece of wood in a device called a kamal to sight Polaris, the North Star. A navigator would tie a knot in the string so that, by holding it in their teeth, they could sight the North Star along the top of the wooden piece and the horizon along the bottom of the wooden piece. To return home, the navigator would sail north or south to bring Polaris to the altitude they had observed in their home port, then turn left or right and sail down the latitude, keeping Polaris at a constant angle. Over time, these Arab navigators started tying knots at intervals of a finger width, which is uh, called an ispa. That's about one degree and 36 minutes. There was even a recorded journal of which knot in the Kamal corresponded to Polaris's altitude for each port a ship would visit most often. The sextant came about when the Arabic world introduced Europeans to the astrolabe, which I already talked about, and the quadrant, which was a Portuguese invention. Under orders from Prince Henry, by 1490, Portuguese astronomers figured out how to determine latitude using the positions of the sun as it moved north and south of the equator with the seasons. We call this the sun's declination. A navigator could determine his latitude using a quadrant to take the altitude of the sun as it reached its greatest altitude at local apparent noon. The navigator would then make a simple correction for the position of the sun north or south of the equator according to the date. Like the knots in a string method of the Arab Kamal, the Portuguese mariner's quadrant provided a quantitative measure in degrees of the altitude of Polaris or the sun and related this number to the latitude. The quadrant looks like a fourth of a piece of pie with a plumb line hanging down from the point of the pie down towards what would be the pie crust. Along the crust edge is a scale of degrees. The quadrant was limited in some very basic practical ways, though. On a windy, rolling deck of a ship, it was really hard to keep it exactly vertical in the plane of a heavenly body, and it was impossible to keep the wind from blowing the plumb line out of line. Sea navigators also had simplified astrolabes at their disposal before the invention of the sextant. Mariner astrolabes had an alidade to sight a star and read its altitude based on a scale around the edge, but other than that, they look like a circle with a cross at the center. No reet or anything. Not a lot of mariners' astrolabes actually survived, and a lot were recovered from shipwrecks. The last piece of the puzzle that became the sextant was a cross staff, which was like a slide rule for stars. It wasn't great to use on a jumpy ship deck either, though. Navigators needed a way to find the angle of a celestial object from the horizon, as well as a way to find the angle between a reference direction and the object, which is called the object's azimuth. Here's an example. Um, Stick your left arm straight out in front of you. Now stick your right arm out to your right, also at shoulder height. The azimuth would be the distance in degrees between your right hand and your left hand. It's probably pretty close to 90 degrees. Using information about a celestial object's angle above the horizon and its azimuth, navigators would be able to estimate their location. John Hadley of England and Thomas Godfrey of the United States both invented the early sextant at about the same time, around 1731. This initial version was called an octant because it was actually an eighth of a circle. An octant measures angles up to 90 degrees, but to observe lunar distances, there needed to be a greater angle range. 
John Bird created the sextant, which is one-sixth of a circle, in 1759. The sextant is basically a telescope with a mariner's quadrant attached to it and a little silvered mirror attached as well. There are modern sextants, and I included a link to a video of a man using one of these modern sextants and explaining what it does in the show notes at fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com if you're curious. What you do is you point the scope towards the celestial body you're measuring. You sight the horizon, then use the little mirror on a movable arm that changes the angle of the mirror to bring the image of the celestial body reflected off the mirror down to just touching the horizon you're seeing through the telescope. This will determine the object's azimuth and altitude to within one arc minute, or one sixtieth of a degree, which is one nautical mile of uncertainty. Then you need to know what time it is to figure out Greenwich Mean Time and plot your location on a map using a ton of math and special tables. There are ways to correct for your height above sea level. Those sextants are really the best for sea travel because you have a clear, visible, flat horizon line to work with. Today, now that we know about it, we also have corrections for atmospheric refraction and for the instrument that you're actually using to measure. tons of other ancient measuring and charting instruments out there that use celestial bodies and a lot of complicated charts, but I want to wrap up with a mysterious and very cool ancient device called the Antikythera Mechanism, named after the Greek island where the diver Elias Stadiatos found it in 1900. Stadiatos was diving 200 feet for sponges when he spotted a shipwreck off the coast of Antikythera. It was a vessel that was heading towards Rome from, from the Aegean Sea, most likely coming from Rhodes. If you've heard of the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven original wonders of the world, that's the city. Over the next two years, archaeologists found tons of bronze and marble statues, wine and jewelry, and one very rusty, corroded lump of metal the size of a shoebox that had 30 hand-cut gear wheels embedded in it. The largest wheel had 235 teeth. This Antikythera mechanism is the first computer. It runs on clockwork and was used to predict the positions of the sun and moon in the night sky. It had spent two millennia on that seabed, and according to Heather Cooper and Nigel Henbest's book, The History of Astronomy, quote, The circular gear wheels reflect the ancient Greeks' preoccupation with circles and with the idea that everything in the sky moves around in circular paths because the heavens are the home of perfection and a circle is the ideal shape, end quote. I found a really good video breaking down what each of the gears in the Antikythera mechanism does, so you should check that out if you want a more comprehensive, detailed, and moving visual explanation. I'll stick to the basics. There is a front and a back to the mechanism. The back dial has two displays. The first was a calendar based on the 19-year metonic cycle that I mentioned in the first podcast, this was a cycle developed by the Babylonians to sync their lunar months with the solar year. In the Metonic cycle, there would be 12 years that lasted 12 lunar months and 7 years that lasted 13 lunar months. The dial with the Metonic cycle also showed the Panhellenic game cycle, which was a four-year cycle that we use today because, hey, Olympics! <laughs> The back dial's second display was an eclipse prediction based on a cycle of 223 months, which is called the Saros cycle, 
And it also included the exelegmos cycle. That was three times the Saro cycle, or 669 months. We still actually use the Saros and exelegmos cycles to predict eclipses. The exelegmos cycle is more accurate and predicts eclipses that will be visible from a location close to the initial one where it's observed. So the back dial predicts eclipses and tells you the date based on the metonic cycle. It had hands like a clock to point out the times. The front dial also had two scales, a fixed frame with the zodiac constellations on it and a movable ring with the 365-day Egyptian solar calendar on it. There were also a series of concentric round plates that had hands extending from them like a clock. These plates indicated the position of the seven planets known at the time, the sun, and the moon. The order of the plates from the furthest out in moving inward is uh, Uranus, Neptune, Jupiter, Mars, and then the sun dial showing the day of the year. Then it went Venus dial, Mercury dial, and the hand of the true sun with the days of the month. Finally, there was a moon assembly mounted to the front of the dials that rotated from a silvered side to an unsilvered half to show what point in its phases the moon was. The gear work to make it all accurate is incredible. The moon's gears mimic how the moon's speed changes over a nine-year cycle and was based on the theory of the moon that Hipparchus developed. To use the Antikythera mechanism, you turned a knob in the front of the wood-encased assembly to select the date and get the positions of the moon and planets. The internal gears adjusted for individual planets' epicycles, so it was still operating with Ptolemy's flawed view of planetary motions, but it was an incredible feat of ancient engineering and mathematics. So, today we talked about some ancient astronomy instruments. The armillary sphere, the astrolabe, the sextant, and the Antikythera mechanism. Three of them, all the A-named instruments, were used to determine the location of planets, the sun, the moon, and the fixed stars based on a specific day and location. The sextant is still used to help ships navigate in the open sea. All of them involve an unbelievable amount of math to use, so I'm sorry I couldn't talk more about that. It's really not my cup of tea. I'm happy to talk about planets for the next podcast, uh, or I could start on spectroscopy. I'm not sure if it'll end up being a two-parter or not. I feel like I'm going to have a lot to say just because I've built it up so much. <laughs> I could also talk about Edmund Halley. I still think he sounds interesting. You can suggest something I should research by sending me an ask on the Tumblr, and you are also welcome to tweet at me at HD in the Void. And since I'm on iTunes now, if you subscribe there, it'll just download the new episodes for you the day they come out. If you could rate it and maybe write a review, I would super appreciate it. And recommend it to your friends who are interested in astronomy or science or history or just soothing voices, maybe. I hope you all heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it folds my warm laundry. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to fold some of your clean, warm laundry, too. Tune in on July 17th for the next episode and check out sources, videos of how to use all these wacky tools, the music credits, my script for this episode, and a vocab list all at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. Mm-hmm.